chapter 5. One of the very first albums that I purchased growing up as a teenager was, uh, was made by an R&B artist by the name of Brian McKnight. He still sings even to this day. Uh, he was and still is, in my opinion, one of the best crooners that God has ever given to planet Earth. And, and, he, and he had this really, really, really popular song way, 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 way back in the day. It's a song that's called One Last Cry. It's a gut-wrenching song about the loss of love. And the gist of the song is basically this loss has been so devastating that, that he has cried practically endlessly to the point that he is now down to his last cry. There are no more tears left to cry. The fifth chapter of Lamentations in some ways serves as this collective last cry of God's chosen people. Their sin has been exposed. Punishment has rained down as a result of it. They've lost their homes. They've, they've lost their livelihood. They've lost their pride. And for four chapters, we have watched them cry and cry and cry. And now we are down to their last cry. You know, I hope throughout this series that you have learned a couple of things. This series that we've called Lament the ideal of there being hope that comes through tears. I hope that you've learned that it is okay to cry, that the expression of that emotion that comes with crying is simply a part of being human. Even if you happen to be Christian, crying is a part of the human Christian experience. And I hope you've learned that it is okay to speak with God about the tears that you cry, to discuss and commune with God, to dialogue with God about the frustration that has produced those tears and the pain that has produced those tears and the uncertainty and the doubts that have produced those tears. I hope you've learned that lesson. And I hope you've learned the lesson that God is listening as you cry, and that he cares about the tears that you cry. In fact, as we've seen throughout this book, sometimes the very reason for the tears is to get our hearts to a place where we see that God is ultimately all we have and that he is ultimately all we need. And that when you turn back to him, he is ready and waiting and willing to receive you. You know, this final chapter in Lamentations is, is built similar to the other ones, but, but it is also different in a few key ways. Number one, structurally, it's different. It's still 22 verses, but no longer is it an acrostic poem. In other words, no longer is it alphabetized in, according to the Hebrew alphabet and orderly like the other chapters that, were, that we read before. There's a little bit more chaos in the structure of Lamentations chapter 5. Another, another, another detail in, in chapter 5 is that it moves away from the sort of advocate approach that we see in the earlier chapters. It is no longer a city talking about itself and the devastation it's received, and, and neither is it a spokesman that is speaking for the people. Now, in chapter 5, the people collectively spend the entire chapter talking to God. Together, they are making a collective appeal 
to God. And this is what you call communal lament. Chapter 5 is a helpful reminder that while it is good to have advocates for the suffering, to speak on behalf of the suffering, there is also a need sometimes for those who are suffering to be given the time and space to speak themselves. In the following quote from his book, Prophetic Lament, Sun Chan, Chan Ra drives this point home. He says this, personified Jerusalem has expressed the people's experience, that's the city crying, and the prophet narrator has spoken on their behalf, that's the advocate crying. But now the people pray for themselves and speak to God for themselves. In many of our justice endeavors, we often believe that our task is to speak for the voiceless, but maybe we need to follow the book of Lamentations and move the ones who suffer to the front and to the center. Oftentimes, in corporate prayer meetings, we offer prayers on behalf of the suffering, even when an individual is present, that in, that individual remains silent while others pray. The example of lamentations may be to move those who suffer to exercise the dig dignity of human agency and, be and become empowered to pray for themselves, end quote. Move those who suffer to the front. May it be so at City Light, and may it be so at every church in our city. May it be that the voice of the suffering is never drowned out by those who are not. May opportunities always be present for the cries of the wounded to be cast to the heavens, as well as the cries of those who are healed. And then finally, a, 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 another way in which the last chapter is different is that it is the most significant, and this is the most significant difference in the chapter, by the way, is that all the other chapters are not the end of the book. This is the end of the book, and thus it is different than all the other chapters in the book. However, it ends in a very odd way. You see, most books have a sense of finality to them, closure, a bookend, if you will. But Lamentations offers us no such thing. Some scholars compare it to a song whose last played note is minor. You see, those songs create the type of ending that leaves the listener saying, was that it? And that's what the fifth chapter of Lamentations ends up doing for us. It, it leaves us with this sense of unfinished business, but more on that later. The last chapter of Lamentations, even with all of those unique qualities, is a very simple and straightforward reading. It breaks down into two parts, two major parts, two major appeals in this one last cry. The first appeal is, remember us. And the second appeal is, restore us. Remember us, restore us. Verse 1 says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. This collective corporate lament, this one last cry for the suffering, begins with a single clear and bold request to God. Remember us. God's judgment has come down fiercely. It has been slow and methodical. It has left them completely and totally devastated. But here is Israel's hope and here is Israel's cry that God will not leave them in this state, that he 
will turn his attention towards them and that he will restore them. Thus they cry, remember us. You see, the loss that God's people are experiencing in this moment in history is extensive and comprehensive. There is, for example, a loss of inheritance. In verse 2 through 4, we hear our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. This predicament is particularly depressing and disheartening because we know how much God is connected to Israel's inherited land. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9, we hear this, For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, inheritance that the Lord is giving you. The inherited land spoke to the covenant God, the covenant that God had established with Israel. In fact, God describes the land as his land. And when his people introduced idols and operated in disobedience to God on this land, he describes it as pollution to his land. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 18 highlights this. It says, but first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have defiled my inheritance, or rather they have filled my inheritance, the land that I gave them with abominations. So what does he do? He takes the land from them. Their continued disobedience has disrupted God's blessings over their city, over their homes, over their lives. But now they have come to their senses and are desperately crying out, Remember us, Lord. Not only is there a loss of inheritance, but there is a loss of honor. Verse 11, depressing as we read it. It says, women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah, princes, are hung up by their hands. No disrespect is shown to the elders. No respect, rather, is shown to the elders. Not only have they been stripped of their land, but the enemy has trampled on their land and robbed them of their honor and their respect. You know, one of the great tragedies of many brutal wars is the manner in which women are objectified and dishonored. This shameful conduct has been considered a tool of war for many centuries. One encyclopedia highlights just in the second half of the 20th century alone that there were cases of rape documented in more than 20 military and paramilitary conflicts. In the 1990s, it says that rape was used as an instrument of ethnic cleansing in the former Yugoslavia and as a means of genocide in Rwanda. In the former case, in the case in Yugoslavia, women belonging to the subjugated ethnic groups were intentionally impregnated through rape. And in the latter case, the case in Rwanda, women belonging to the Tutsi ethnic group were systematically raped by men infected with HIV that were recruited 
for the purposes of inflicting such punishment on those women. The intent was to destroy a people, not only socially and economically, but emotionally and psychologically. A country unable to protect its women is left with absolutely zero morale. But it doesn't stop there. Their royalty is also treated with utter contempt. Princes are punished brutally and hung up in shame. The elders of the community, of the community are discounted and disregarded. All the people that we bestow the greatest protections upon usually are left helpless in this scene. This tells you all you need to know about Israel. They have been humiliated beyond comprehension. Their morale could not be in a lower place. To this brutal reality, the suffering people look to the sky, to their God, and they cry out, remember us. They have lost their honor. They have also lost opportunity. When you look at verse 13, young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The young men now work themselves to death for the sake of another. The fruit of their energy and dedication has been robbed of them and they've been made out just for cheap labor. You hear this in verse 8 as well. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. They used to be well fed. The economy used to flow. Opportunities used to abound. And now they have to fight for their lives to be fed. They have to work themselves to the bone for minimum earnings. Through this hardship, they cry out again, remember us. There's a loss of honor. There is a loss of inheritance. There is a loss of opportunity, but there is also a loss of wisdom. In verse 14, the old men have left the city gate. This symbolizes the loss of wisdom and judgment. The old men at the city gates normally would gather to provide wisdom and render judgments on community matters as they came about, but they are no longer present at the gates. There's been a loss of wisdom. You know, this should be a reminder to us that oftentimes we lose more than just economic and emotional capital when destruction comes to a city, a nation, or a community. We also have the ability to suffer intellectually. We can lose our knowledge. We can lose our grasp on wisdom. And even in the second half of verse 14 through verse 15, we read of another loss. The loss of joy. Verse, the second half of verse 14 says, the young men and their music now is gone. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. One scholar highlights these two losses in the following quote. He says, wisdom, justice, and happiness had departed from the city. 
The city gate where the elders used to gather was the place of justice and wisdom. Disputes between individuals were taken to the wise elders. But with the departure of the elders, the wisdom and justice normally available to the Jews was gone. Even the music of the young men had ceased. Music was associated with joy and happiness. And Judah had nothing to rejoice about now as her people suffered under the harsh hand of Babylon. End quote. The loss is Total, social, economic, emotional, intellectual, psychological. Never underestimate what a really bad pillaging of a community can do to that community. When we look at wars and when tragedy strikes a community or even tragedy strikes a home, we typically think about the economic implications. Many of us are doing that even right now as we think about COVID-19 and what's going on with this pandemic. But there are so many layers to consider when tragedy strikes, so many losses that the people are faced with in their suffering that must be ministered to, that must be made, or that must have awareness drawn to it. With all that said, verse 16 really ties all of this together for me because it says this. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The people are saying collectively that we were once high, and now we've been made low. The royalty has turned to slaves. The princes have been made beggars. And why is that? For we have sinned. Again, the loss is comprehensive. The loss is extensive, but it is not mysterious. They know why they are suffering. They have turned their backs on God. They have trusted in themselves. They have considered themselves too high, and now they are paying the price. But in all of this, they have learned the most important lesson and all of the suffering, an important lesson, the most important lesson has bubbled to the surface. They have learned not to flee from God any longer. They finally understand the key to restoration is to return back to God, which is why they are crying out, remember us. You know, this past Wednesday during our virtual missional community gathering together. We, we, we spent time again taking a deep dive into chapter four, last week's message. And as we took that deep dive, we asked this question. And I want to ask this question again tonight or this morning. I want to ask this question of you. Have you ever found yourself running from God, trying everything else but God until he finally boxes you in almost to the point where it feels like there is nowhere else to go but to him. This is Israel right now. They have been boxed in. They are left with no other direction to turn, and so they have come to their senses, and now they are crying out, remember us. Here's the good thing about God. We know that he will remember them. Our God is one who does and will remember. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 
40, it says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. God remembers us. Psalm chapter 105, it's in verse 8 through 11, the, or the, the one, 105th Psalm, it says, He remembers his covenant forever, the, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting command, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. He remembers us. Psalm 106, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. He remembers us. In the New Testament, Towards the end of Jesus' life on earth, there was a wretched thief that was hanging on the cross or hanging on his own cross next to an innocent Jesus. Moments remaining in his life, he made this one request to Jesus as he was dying. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replied, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's the security that we have in Christ. No matter, no matter how bad it looks right now for you, no matter how far, you have, uh, how far gone you appear to be right now, no matter how much you've lost spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, socially, economically, Here's the confidence, here's the security that we have in Jesus, that with a heart filled with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you can cry out today, Lord, remember me, and your Savior will remember you. That was the first part of the cry. Now quickly, let's turn to the last part. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? What is the second part to this last cry? Restore us. Remember us. Restore us. In verse 19, there's this realization that God never needed our thrones to reign. The throne they constructed for him, the glorious temple in Jerusalem that was erected for him has been destroyed, has been leveled because of their pride, their disobedience, their idolatry. It now sits in ashes and rubble. And yet, what do we hear about God? You reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So how do they respond to that truth? They first respond, don't forget us. 
remember us. Because why? Because even though we thought that we were in charge and even though we built these things and we trusted in all of our expertise and all of our ingenuity and all of our riches and all of our beauty and all of our power, now we realize that we can't trust in any of those things. So remember us. But what else? Verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord that we may be restored, renew our days as of old. Now, Pastor John Piper really sets this passage ablaze for me by uncovering the literal translation from the Hebrew, listen closely, cause us to return, O Lord, and we will return. Cause us to return, O Lord, and we will return. So there is an ask, and then there is an action. The people are making the ask, but they are depending on the Lord for the action. Remember us, and if you remember us, restore us. We've drifted, but we are confident that you can bring us back, God. Here's the encouragement for you in this lament this morning. This nation that we read uh, read about this morning is beaten They're tired, they're weak, they're weary, they've lost everything, but from the ache of their souls, they are crying out, remember me and restore me. They only have the strength to make the ask, remember me and restore me, but it is God who will fuel the action. It is God who will cause them to return. Some of you know this feeling this morning very well. Maybe you've stumbled into this live stream this morning and just decided to listen a little longer than usual because the Lord used something that was said to speak to you. Maybe you've been faithfully attending church, but the last several weeks or months or years have just beaten you down, and now you are at your wit's end. Maybe you have no strength left, but your heart is crying out, remember me, Lord, restore me, Lord. Here's the assurance that you have. If you make the sincere ask, God will fuel the action. Some of you haven't made the ask because you think the power to turn is all depending on you, but the restoration power isn't yours. The restoration power belongs to God. Make the ask. Remember me, O oh God. Make the ask. Restore me, O oh God. Cause us to return to you, O oh Lord, and we will return. You will return. Verse 22 is the end of this chapter and the end of this book, and it offers us an uncertain ending. Read with me in verse 22. It says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. As I mentioned earlier, the poet leaves us with a cliffhanger of sorts. It feels unfinished. It feels unresolved. The The way that the poet asks the question causes us, as we read, to ask, has God given up on his people? Is his frustration and anger simply too great to to overcome? Have they crossed him one too many times? 
You know, there are two popular sayings in American culture that fit very well into our collective philosophy and mentality and psyche. One is, everyone deserves a second chance. The other one is, three strikes and you're out. In other words, we're all fine with a little mercy, but not too much. A little grace, but let's not overdo it. We all have experienced the frustration of being crossed one too many times. We all have experienced a tipping point where our kindness has been abused more times than we can seemingly take and accept. So Lamentations ends with a very simple question. Will God do the same to us? Has God reached his tipping point with his people? Have you ever felt this way before, God? Maybe you've, maybe you've promised him over and over again to be obedient. Maybe you've vowed complete and total faithfulness and, and dedication and declared what you would never do again, only to find yourself doing the very same thing next week. Maybe you've watched the struggles play out in your life, the hardships that seem to have no end in sight, the bouts with illness, the bouts with finances. Maybe you've asked a similar question to yourself. God, have you utterly rejected us? God, do you remain exceedingly angry with me? God, are you done with me? But not only that, not only that question. Lamentations ends with a question for God, but it ends with no answer from God. In fact, this entire book is filled with questions from God's people, but we don't hear God's voice at any point. And maybe you've experienced that as well. The moments that your voice is the loudest towards God, you're practically shouting for answers and there's nothing but silence in response. In fact, it often seems to be that the silence feels the loudest when suffering is the greatest. For many of you, these are not just questions that we read on Scripture. These are questions that we've uttered from the confines of our own bed, from our knees with tears in our eyes, from the inside of our cars, parked, silent, and worn down. Have you utterly rejected us? Are you too angry to listen to our plea for restoration? God doesn't give an answer in Lamentations. But here's the good news. God does have an answer. You see, God the Father doesn't give an answer in Lamentations because God the Father has given an answer through God the Son. Will God restore us? Yes. The Apostle Peter tells us that those that belong to Christ, though they will suffer, will eventually be restored through Christ. Will God renew us? The answer is yes. The Apostle Paul tells us that if that it was Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Has God utterly rejected us? The answer is no. Scripture tells us that Christ was rejected by his own all the way to the point of suffering death on a cross, 
Is he too angry to listen to our pleas for restoration? The answer is no. Scripture shows us that God's righteous anger towards our sin was thrust upon his son on the cross in order that all who trust him by faith would not perish but might be given everlasting life. There is no conclusive ending in Lamentations because the end of this story is found in Jesus. The end of our story is found in Christ. Why can we weep with confidence? How can we find hope through the tears? How do we know that our lament will end with joy? We know this. We have confidence. And we can find hope because we have Jesus. As we close this series, I just want to remind you and encourage you that it's all right to cry. We need to restore Lament to our churches. A people without the ability to cry is a people without authenticity. We aren't robots. God created us with emotions. And when tragedy comes, those emotions are meant to be on display. It's what it means to be human and Christian. It's all right to cry. However, we don't cry without hope. It's all right to plead with God, but we don't plead as people simply shouting to the air. We cry as a people who serve a God who one day will wipe every tear from our eye. We plead as a people who serve a God who has tended to my plea primarily by sending his very own son to die in my place. In our deepest and darkest hours of despair, it is him that we look to when we need to know if God the Father is still there. It's him that we look to when we need to know if God still cares for us. And it's him that we look to if we need evidence as to whether or not God is going to make everything all right. Through Jesus Christ, we've been given the answer to our laments. Let us pray. God, we love you so much. And we give you all the thanks, we give you all the praise, we give you all the glory, we give you all the honor. We ask, Lord, that in our deepest and darkest hours, you will remember us and that you will restore us. And that you will remember us and restore us not based on our own, our own righteousness, our own doing, our own willpower but you would remember us and restore us based on the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that his righteousness would be our righteousness. Father, if there be any that are watching this morning that do not know you, we pray and we ask, Lord God, that you would turn their affections and turn their attention to you, that, Lord God, you would capture them, and, Lord God, that you would cause them to cry out, remember me, Lord, restore me, Lord, through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would embrace your son, Jesus, by faith, that they would turn from sin and that they would trust him as Lord and as Savior, thereby, Lord God, avoiding the wrath that, shows, that, that is displayed in eternity through hell. That they would embrace Christ and as a result, Lord God, be rescued and delivered from sin, death, and condemnation. 
Father, if there be those that know you but are wrestling, Lord God, with trials and struggles in life, Father, we pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged to continue to cling to their Savior and that in Jesus they would find hope through their tears. Father, we thank you that we have the ability to bring our tears to you with the confidence that you not only will hear us, but you will remember us and you will restore us. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.